0: Hi, you're very welcome to the second episode in our series of the Irish People podcast. I'm your host for this month, Kiva Garland. In this episode, we are focusing on a historical theme, the life and times of Winifred Carney, Republican, socialist, suffragette, trade unionist, revolutionary, close confidant of James Connolly, and probably most famously, the typist with the Webley. Maria Winifred Kearney was born in Bangor County Down in 1887. She was the second youngest of seven children, born to a Catholic mother, Sarah Cassidy, and a Protestant father, Alfred Kearney, who was a commercial traveller. After the break-up of her parents' marriage, her father moved to London. Her mother raised the family in Belfast, moving to the Falls Road to run a small sweet shop. She received a good education and was one of the first women to qualify as a secretary and shorthand typist. Having this qualification meant that she was an independent woman with a career ahead of her and as a result she secured a job as a clerk in a solicitor's office in Dungannon. Winnie Carney lived during a period of political turmoil and at a time when many women were becoming more involved in politics in Ireland, in the labour movement, in republicanism and in the suffragettes. Belfast at the turn of the 20th century was a very different city to Dublin in its outlook on socialism, nationalism and even cultural events. Belfast was a working class, working city with engineering and linen workers. It had a strong organised working class, but a smaller nationalist class who were mainly from the middle classes. And because it was smaller, it didn't have as many barriers against women taking part in politics. An example of this was Anna Johnson and Alice Milligan, who edited The Northern Patriot, the newspaper of the Henry Joy McCracken Society. Carney, with her interest in social justice, had a choice as to where she wanted to put her energies and her strong pull towards radical politics meant she took a job working for the unions in the mill. The pay was much less than if she had remained as a secretary, but it gave her an incredible insight into working conditions and she very much wanted to do whatever she could to improve the quality of life for the working class. At the time, striking was not common. There had been a mill strike in 1906, with some small improvements won. However, on each occasion there was a crisis, employers would speed up production or put workers on half-time or short-time. In order to maintain discipline and keep morale low, there were strict rules about workers singing or even talking to each other. In 1911 Connolly was living in Belfast and in the process of organising the Dockers when some of the women related to the Dockers asked for help with improving their conditions. Connolly provided this support and the linen strike of 1911 took place. It only lasted for two weeks and the strike ended because of lack of pay and an inability for the union to support the workers financially. The introduction of Connolly changed Carney's life dramatically. Connolly, as we know, was incredibly supportive of women. He encouraged them to educate themselves, to read and to involve themselves in political struggle. Carney became involved in the Gaelic League, the Suffragette movement and later the Socialist movement, along with her friend Marie Johnson, wife of the future leader of the Labour Party, Thomas Johnson. It was when Marie Johnson fell sick in 1912 that she asked Kearney to take on her work as secretary for the Irish Textile Workers Union. To her socialist trade union activity, she naturally gravitated towards republicanism and she soon joined the citizens army and come in Amman. She continued to work closely with Connolly in their attempts to improve conditions for women workers. In the manifesto of the textile workers, which she co-wrote, it says... Many Belfast mills are slaughterhouses for the women and penitentiaries for the children. But while the world is deploring your conditions, they also unite in deploring your slavish and servile nature in submitting to them. They unite in wondering what material these Belfast women are made, who refuse to unite together and fight to better their conditions. Kearney strongly supported Connolly's political ideas and due to her close working relationship and friendship with him, was aware of the planned rising. She became his aide-de-camp when preparations for the rising began. She said, James Connolly honoured me with his trust and confidence in a way he did with no other person. While Carson and the UVF fought against Home Rule, the Irish Volunteers formed in retaliation, and a year later coming on. It is interesting that the Belfast Amon did more than act as auxiliaries and instead acted as counterparts to the men. Whereas other branches of Cuminamon learned to dismantle guns in order to smuggle them away or to clean them, the Belfast branch learned how to fire them. In fact, before Christmas 1915, Carney won a prize for her shooting, proving that when she laid her typewriter and her Webley on the counter, it wasn't just for show. She knew exactly what to do with a gun and was prepared to do what was required. Kearney has long been referred to as James Connolly's secretary, but in reality she was much more than this. She was his personal assistant, his confidant and his comrade. Her skills as a shorthand secretary and typist were invaluable to him. On the 14th of April 1916, Connolly sent a telegram instructing Kearney to travel to Dublin immediately. Initially, she worked from Liberty Hall, typing dispatches and mobilisation orders, until moving to the GPO with Connolly and the Citizens Army on Easter Monday when the fighting began. She was the only woman present during the initial occupation of the GPO, and she entered armed with a typewriter and a Webley revolver, becoming known as the typist with the Webley. She described the moment. We halt outside the GPO, Connolly giving the order, and we quickly march inside. He directs the volunteers to clear out the staff and customers, which they quickly do. In a few moments, the staff appear from all over the building, some of the women in an almost fainting condition. Soon they are gone and the doors are closed. Two British officers remain. They are prisoners. Kearney was a first-hand witness of the Declaration of the Irish Republic. Describing the moment, she said, When we have settled into our occupation and the tricolour floats from the post office standard, Connolly takes me out to the centre of O'Connell Street to see the flag of the Republic wave on high and we shake hands. Meantime, the proclamation is read by Pierce in front of the GPO. During this time, she observed the leaders close up, making this interesting observation of Michael Collins, who would later be on the opposite side of the Civil War to Winnie. To keep up the morale of the men, Conly encourages the volunteers to sing songs, many that they used to sing on route marches. I encounter Michael Collins coming down the stairs during this time, and he sarcastically informs me if a piano is needed, there was one in a room nearby. Ignoring his sarcasm, I quite seriously reply that I do not think it would be needed. In these days, watching him move about with his hand thrust in his breast, Napoleon-like, I think him sour and unimaginative looking, as his remark seems to prove. She was one of the few women in the GPO, and although she was not a combatant, she was, however, given the rank of adjutant. She was a member of the last group to leave the GPO, which included Connolly and Pearce. When Connolly was wounded, she refused to leave his side despite direct orders from both Connolly and Pierce, and she took Connolly's final dictated orders. As he lay wounded, uncertain of his own fate that our next move would decide, he said to Pierce, I want you to trust Miss Carney as you would me. After the surrender, she noted, The order for surrender has come. Mick Collins, his eyes red with unshed tears and apparently anticipating being sent to France as a conscript, says to me, by Christ I'll have revenge for this. But I tell him that there are better men than him surrendering today. Following the rising, she was held in Comainham jail initially and later moved to Mount Joy. She described hearing the first executions. In the early morning of May 3rd, I am awakened by the sound of firing. My heart sinks, for I know the first of the executions has begun. But for many mornings to come, we shall awake to that close noise of rifle firing and the crisp voice of the officer in command. She was transferred to Aylesbury Prison in England. Carney, along with Nell Ryan and Helena Maloney, requested that their status as internees be revoked, along with privileges, so that they could be held as normal prisoners like Constance Markovitch, Their request was denied. Her time in prison left her worried for her mother, who was living alone in Belfast. She famously commented, Revolutionaries, I suppose, ought not to have relatives. She was finally released in December 1916. The transport union was devastated in Dublin and the union needed to be rebuilt. Liberty Hall had been almost razed to the ground and the task of rebuilding the Union began. Winnie was concerned about her mother and returned to Belfast, where she once again took up the reins for the Union in the North, remaining a militant Republican who believed strongly in a workers' republic. After her release, she was elected President of Cumannemann in 1917. Many people would seek her advice and support in order to get things done, including moving papers and equipment around Belfast. Her knowledge of what houses were safe and the fact she was well-connected were invaluable to the movement. In 1918, women could not only vote in elections, but could stand as candidates. Republican women had taken much from the proclamation, particularly around equal rights and opportunities. Yet Sinn Féin only chose two women. Winifred Carney and Constance Markovich. Sadly, Carney only polled about 400 votes. This was partly due to the fact she had contested a strongly unionist area, an area that was unwinnable for a Republican candidate, but also because she had stood on her own platform for a workers' republic, which had not gained the support of middle class nationalists. It was after this that she really lost faith in Sinn Fein. She no longer believed they were serious about radical politics about her as a woman, and most importantly, she realised that they were not serious about class politics. She could no longer be a part of the narrow vision the party had for the future. An extract from my electoral manifesto shows the stark difference between her platform of a workers' republic and that of Sinn Féin. The issue then is clear and definite. Ireland or England? Independence or subjection? Freedom or slavery? the Republic or the English Monarchy, the Workers' Republic or the Capitalist Empire, the Sovereign People or the People in Chains. You know for which of these I stand, for which do you stand? She became Secretary for the Irish Republican Prisoners Dependence Fund, Deputy Liaison between Collins and Prisoners Leader Austin Stack. Carney understood from her own time incarcerated that prisoners needed information news, support and most importantly empathy, something which she had an immense amount of. Following the treaty, Kearney took the anti-treaty side and once more became active in Cuminamon, working with the 1st Battalion of the Belfast Brigade. Many in the north were shocked by the treaty, knowing that they would now be cut off from the 26 counties and left with a hostile Unionist majority. In fact, Cumannamon voted 416 to 76 against the treaty, a sign of how strongly the anti-treaty feeling was in their ranks. During the Civil War, she was subsequently arrested several times. In 1920, she had joined the Socialist Party of Ireland and then in 1924, the Northern Ireland Labour Party. It was in this small group of people who were attempting to build a non-sectarian base and rebuild the Labour Party where she met her future husband, George McBride, a fellow socialist from the Shank Hill and they lived on Whitewell Parade on the outskirts of North Belfast with her mother. McBride had fought in the British Army during the war where he had been captured in Germany and worked down the mines. On his return to Belfast he had taken up the mantle of socialism. Although he came from a Protestant background, his father had idolised Jim Larkin and had taken a young George to see Larkin speak. In 1928, Carney and McBride eloped to Hollyhead to marry, following which both their families disowned them. Although they had very different opinions and views on the national question, they concentrated on that which they had in common, which was class politics and improving the lives of the working class particularly that of a united working class. Due to the marriage ban at the time, she ceased work with the trade union following her marriage and they later moved to Whitehead outside Belfast, which away from the smog and pollution was better for Kearney's deteriorating health and where she could also care for her mother, who was now in her 90s. She died on the 21st of November 1943 and it is said that McBride never recovered from her death. For many years her grave went unmarked. It is reported that this was due to her brother's unhappiness that she had married a Protestant. Following a trade union campaign, the National Graves Association finally erected a headstone for her in 1985. In the years following the rising, War of Independence and the Civil War, the role of women was much overlooked, even hidden. It is important to note that Cumannamon also took the anti-treaty side and this meant that the role of women came under very serious criticism at the time. One newspaper, the Sunday Graphic, went so far as to publish a headline titled Irish Gunwoman Menace, describing Cumannamon members as trigger-happy harpies. The Free State Government would go so far as to ban Cumannamon in January 1923, detaining any women suspected of membership in Kilmainham Jail. Alongside this, the Catholic Church issued letters calling on women to cease all revolutionary activity. Of course, the following years under De Valera and the Roman Catholic stranglehold were no better, with women removed from participating in juries, working after marriage, working in industry or the public sector. Contraception was made illegal under the 1935 criminal law and divorce was banned in Ireland in 1937. The Constitution clearly stated that the state recognises that by her life within the home, woman gives to the state a support without which the common good cannot be achieved. The state shall, therefore, endeavour to ensure that mothers shall not be obliged by economic necessity to engage in labour to the neglect of their duties in the home. De Valera famously refused to have any women under his command of Boland's Mills during the Rising, despite direct orders from the leaders so it is unsurprising that he would ensure the role of women during the rising and subsequent years would be airbrushed. The contribution played by women in Irish history has often been neglected or deliberately sidelined. However, the centenary commemorations of the last few years have begun to put that right, and we are beginning to see women, like Kearney, rise more in notability and prominence, taking their rightful place in our history. Kearney was a remarkable woman, Her writings, particularly her GPO memoirs, give us an insight into a woman who is deeply compassionate. Her concern for the leaders and the volunteers is striking. Fearless and no-nonsense, committed and fiercely loyal. Carney, like Connolly, understood the need for class politics and a united working class. She would never accept the argument that labour must wait. It is for these reasons, and for her contribution to creating a better society and a better Ireland, she should be remembered. She will continue to inspire many more generations of socialist Republicans. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We really hope that you found it interesting. Please like, rate, share and review. And we'll be back next month with another episode. So until then, long